I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you have one of the um, church Bibles, it's page 1482. Page 1482. If you need a Bible, feel free to go grab one. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep one. Um, It'd be our gift to you. I want to invite you to open the Bible to Mark 6 and verse, we'll read from verse 30. And uh, overlapping slightly with what we were looking at last time. So if As you recall, uh, Jesus sent out his disciples, the 12 disciples, on the first ever missions expedition. And they returned having met with a certain amount of success. They'd enjoyed preaching the gospel, seeing people healed, and, um, and seeing the power of God come through the work that they were doing. And they returned to Jesus not even had a, having had a meal. They're exhausted. They're spent, but they're also you ever had that experience of just being so, having such a full heart that you almost, it doesn't matter that you haven't eaten, um, you just feel so full, but you can imagine they just crash. And as Jesus receives them back, um, he invites them away to a desolate place. And this is what happens from verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they get on the Sea of Galilee, they cross to another part where they think, no one's going to be there. No one will find us. And it says, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it them to eat? That was about 200 days labor. Um, 200 days of work. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Sometimes adds um, in other gospels besides women and children. So we can imagine there could have been upwards of 10, 15,000 people there that day. We've been, let me just say a prayer. Father, we are we're hungry to know you better. We're hungry to know your living word, touch our lives, change our outlook. Teach us, God, your ways. Teach us who you are. Feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through this extraordinary gospel, this document that was written uh, very soon after the coming of Jesus, his death and resurrection, just a matter of years later. 
and telling us all about him. We've been keen to discover, as we've been studying it, a little bit more about the, um, the demands that Jesus makes on the world that are backed up by his claims. And it's all undergirded by this deep conviction that Jesus is worth your attention. He's worth your devotion. He wants to change your life. And I'm so conscious that many of us have experienced and encountered him on that level. Uh, At the same time, I'm really aware, and I've been trying to show you through some of the earlier stories, that the reality is that even those of us who are followers of Jesus often struggle in our faith and will encounter moments or seasons. And sometimes you might be in one, even at this, uh, at this moment, where you, you struggle in terms of your relationship with God and there is all kinds of doubts cropping up. And the questions normally are not, is it true? Is it real? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And I've been trying to make the case to you, I think that is the most important place to start. And if you've not gone there, go back there. But I rather think that most of the reason why Christians struggle, and even if you wouldn't put yourself in that camp, I recognize that in your day-to-day experience of walking with God, you know what it is to, um, to stray, to step away, to be drawn away to other things. Most of the reasons why we encounter anything like a kind of spiritual deficit in our lives is rather not whether this is true, but whether God is good. Whether you feel in your deepest, instinctive, gut-level conviction that the God we believe in and the the Savior that we are called by means to do you good. Or to put it another way, whether he wants to fulfill you, whether he wants to make you happy, whether he wants you to experience joy and satisfaction on a day-to-day basis. I think that's where most of our trouble arises. And you think this has always been the case. We could trace this through the Bible, but it's right there in the earliest pages of the Bible. Adam and Eve had no doubts about whether God was real What they began to doubt was whether he meant to do them good. Whether they could look to him and know that their hearts would be filled and fulfilled. This is the problem. And I think this is what this miracle actually aims to speak to. Now, let me just paint a little bit of backdrop for you. This obviously is a somewhat bizarre um, event. And so many of the miracles I've been showing you have resonances and echoes and meaning that's way deeper than just a surface-level event that happened. Now, this particular miracle um, resonates with something that had happened uh, centuries and centuries before to the Israelites when they were rescued from Egypt. This is the, the beginnings of a nation, effectively, where they'd been slaves in Egypt. God had rescued them from Egypt, and they'd wandered around in the wilderness for years and years before God finally brought them across into the land that is now Israel. And in their journeys, one of the first problems they encountered, of course, was a lack of food. Now, this story echoes that story because they're both placed in a wilderness place. It says in Mark, in a desolate place, which literally means a wilderness. They're both, both, in both stories, you have this image of the crowd of Israelites being camped in in, uh, in formation, in hundreds and fifties, just as they were in their wilderness journeys. In both events, there's the God of heaven provides in the Old Testament. It talks about manna coming down from heaven as their food. Here, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and calls upon the Father to provide for them. And then at the end, 12 baskets are, are gathered up, representing, of course, the abundance of God's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is all very interesting. And what does it mean to us? Now, I want you to understand where I'm going with this. 
When you look back at the story of the Israelites, rescued as they were from Egypt, brought into the wilderness, the first real spiritual crisis that takes place is not the crisis over whether God is real. They know he's done an extraordinary thing for them. The crisis is whether God is good. It tells us in Exodus 16 that they were, they were there and they began to grumble. They said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Listen carefully. They'd experienced God move in the big thing. God had rescued them from Egypt, from slavery, and brought them into a place of the experience of freedom. And now, where the doubt creeps in is around the small thing. The fact that they're, they're experiencing a rumbling bellies, and they're dreaming about food. I, I get that. When I go without food for any length of time, it feels like the most important thing in the world to me at that moment. It's not even, even the only story in the Bible where people basically lose their faith over hunger. God had dealt with the big thing, and all they can think about is pots of stew and hunks of bread to dip in the stew, and the sweet juices of the meat just pouring down their beards. I'm losing it here, so let's get back to the point. What does this have to do with us? For most of you who call Jesus Lord, you've been redeemed. The big thing has happened. You've been rescued from slavery. You've been brought into experience of freedom. You know what it is to call Jesus your friend and your savior. But your spiritual struggles probably won't originate over the questions about whether he's true, whether he rose from the dead, whether he's really forgiven you. Your spiritual struggles arise over appetites, desires that cause you to question whether He's good. You think about, I mean, I think about our context, and it's barely a week goes by when I don't know of somebody who's struggling in this area, particularly around romantic desire. And even a willingness to walk away from God because of the desire to be fulfilled romantically. For others, you know, and we could list examples of this, but if you begin to wonder, does God mean to do me good in terms of his giving me fulfillment and success and career and these kinds of things. If you struggle with that, then you could walk away from God. It could be some other area of pleasure-seeking, of desire fulfillment in your life. And for each of you, it will be different, but you know what I'm talking about. There's something that can pull you away from God because you say, I don't know if God wants to fulfill me in this area of my life. And this is powerful to me. This is drawing me. This is beckoning me away from Him. So, That's what I think this story is about. It is incredibly important because it appears in all four of the Gospels. And uh, it's the only miracle that actually occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to help you to see how its importance is there in showing us life-changing truths about Jesus. And I'm going to help you see that on three levels. We're going to mine down into this, this story and go through three strata, through the rock as it were. Here's the first level. Jesus wants to provide for you. Jesus wants to provide for you and give you everything that you need in life. Now, I'm conscious that in preaching that and teaching you that, this is a simple truth. 
Anybody who's walked with God for any length of time will know that we, we acknowledge God as our provider. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. But I think there's an urgency for Christians to hear this again. Partly because we live in an age that's obsessed with material need. And not in fact need, actually obsessed with fulfilling your material desires that go way beyond your needs. Because all of our needs have been met, haven't they? It's generally that we have a longing for things that go way beyond need. So much so that in our culture, we have, in our society, we have to redefine what poverty is every th- few years because people's standard of living keeps going up and up and up. So the poor is only a relative term. It's not an absolute term. Now, this context we're in, but also, I suspect that if you look at your own heart, even if you trust God or think you trust God, there are often diagnostics or evidences within your heart, within your spirit, that indicate that in this area, you're not, in fact, trusting him. I think about anxiety. Are you somebody who worries about where things are going to come from, the stuff that you need? Are you worried about that? provision? Think about meanness, tight-fistedness. All of us, at times, feel uh, a temptation to hold on tight to the things that we have. What is that? It's actually a lack of trust in the God who can provide, isn't it? Well, think about um, daydreaming. How much of our time can be spent imagining the things that we could have, the places we could go, uh, the stuff that we would love God to provide. Now, the reason I'm stressing this point and why I think it actually is part of what this miracle teaches us is that I think that a lack of trust for God's provision is a much greater spiritual threat than you may have realized up to now. It's partly because it's a theological thing. It speaks right at the heart of what you think God is like. It reveals uh, whether you you think God is a loving father who cares for you, whether you think of him as somebody who's withholding good things from you. It's a theological issue. And this, more than any other thing in your life, I think, speaks to whether you, you know God. But it's also because it's a practical issue. What I mean is that it really affects... In a very earthed, all-consuming way, it affects how you spend your time and energy and the things that you're running at and the things that you're devoting yourself to, perhaps more than most other things in your life. It's a degree to which you trust God to provide. This is why when, you know, Jesus talks a lot about, he talks a lot about money and provision and God. And I think about one of the sections in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, occupies three chapters in Matthew's Gospel. But right in the middle of that sermon, he talks at length about the problem of anxiety. He talks about, he opens in this way, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Don't be anxious, he says. And the reason why he stresses this so much is because of the things I'm telling you. Jesus was conscious and speaking as he was in a world in which actually they had a lot less than us. He was conscious that this goes right to the heart of what they think God is like and of how they would actually spend their time and energy, whether they could serve him or not. And so he he begins to address this issue firstly at the the level of theology. He says things like this. He says, uh, 
in verse 26 of Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. A little bit later, uh, down in, in verse 32, he says, The Gentiles seek after things, meaning what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He says, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In other words, the way Jesus goes down into your heart to deal with and do surgery in the area of anxiety over whether God is going to meet all your needs is firstly by addressing your theology. By helping you to see that God is Father who cares. And then he shows you the practical outworking of that. If you have a right theology, which is always the most important thing about you, if you have a right theology, you know God, in other words, you know him as he is, you know him as the Father who cares, then it will spill out in the way you live. And he goes on at the end of that section. He says, uh, this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, the person who trusts God, who knows him as father, can devote, devote and dedicate their life to the pursuit of God's will, of God's pleasure, of obedience to him, knowing that God's going to add everything else that you need along the way. And people who don't do that are the people who don't really know God to begin with. Now, let's come back to this story, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is not satisfied merely to teach truths that hang in the air in a vacuum. He teaches, but also demonstrates the reality of the things he's teaching. And here we are. We have a crowd of people who basically are obeying that command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus is not going to let them down. They're so eager to seek him that when they set out on the boat across the Sea of Galilee, these guys run through the towns and fields around to meet them on the other side, thinking that's where they're headed. They're, they're hot in pursuit of Jesus. And Jesus looks out upon them, sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he says he has compassion on them. And he begins to teach them, and then he feeds them. I love how the story ends by telling us how abundantly God provides It says at the end of the passage that they gathered up how many baskets? Twelve baskets of leftover scraps from the hillside there. Just to demonstrate that God isn't mean. God isn't withholding. He wants to meet your needs. And let me ask you this provocative question. How would your life be different if you really believe this? How would your daily decisions be different if you trusted that Jesus loves you, that he cares about you, and that he wants to meet your needs? That's the first strata. I want us to go a little deeper into what is going on in this story. Here's the second thing. Jesus doesn't just want to meet your physical needs. He also wants to satisfy you in your soul. It's really obvious that he has a deeper concern for this crowd than just whether they get their meal. Because you think about what happens when he sees them there. If I'd seen the crowd waiting on the other side of the lake, I would have been a little bit annoyed, I think. Because when I go to be alone, switch my phone on airport mode, I want to be left alone. And these guys, 
They're crowding in on their alone time and their rest and relaxation. But Jesus, it says right at the start of the story, it says when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, ask yourself this question. When he looks out upon the multitude and has this gut-level compassion, this visceral love for them and desire to help them, is he primarily concerned with their momentary physical needs? The answer is no, that's not primarily what's on his mind. What's rather on his mind as he looks at them as sheep without a shepherd is he cares about them in terms of their spiritual and at the, at the level of whether their lives were being fulfilled, whether they, experienced, whether they were experiencing hope on a day-to-day basis, whether they knew God, whether they were enjoying God, whether they were walking consciously in the knowledge of God and in his purposes. They were sheep without a shepherd, which means to say that all those things were not true of them. And what does Jesus do first? Before he feeds them, the first thing he does is he begins in his compassion to teach them. In other words, he looks out upon people and sees what their spiritual and soul needs are. Then he begins to speak into those needs. This was his pattern wherever he went. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because I think sometimes we get this story back to front. We read it and think that the multiplication of the bread and the fish is the point of the story. But actually, the fact that Jesus wanted to, to teach these people is the point of the story the multiplication of the bread and the fish is just the, the visible illustration of that greater reality of what Jesus was doing for them. And the proof of that is that he, he does this twice in the Gospels, but much more often when he's traveling from place to place and sees the crowds of people, his first instinct always is to speak, is to teach the word of God into their lives so as to address their deepest needs. It's only an afterthought almost that He might heal them, or he might cast out demons, or he might give them bread, as he does on this occasion. He's concerned with something deeper. Now, we need to understand what this means. I want you to think about your own situation. If you think about the diagnostic that Jesus is showing here, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. What he's saying about us is that Without him, without his powerful spiritual nourishment, we're spiritually emaciated beings. That without Christ helping us, we become vulnerable. We become lost. Even if you know exactly where you're going in life, in a deeper sense, you know, in that sense of existential angst, you, you feel a lostness. You feel a hopelessness. You feel an encroaching despair. I think about our wider situation. I heard the other day that, you know, we're one of the most prosperous nations on planet Earth. And I heard the other day that 4% of our GDP, which is about 94 billion pounds, is spent on mental health issues. And to put that in perspective, we only spend 2.5% on defense, on the military. Which tells you that in a world in which all of our physical needs are met, and I've never met a person in Britain who's starving, for example, 
in a world in which we have actually an accumulation of abundance, there are spiritual problems which can only be described as Jesus sees it here. We're like sheep without a shepherd. That's the diagnostic. And into that, the cure comes. Jesus doesn't just want to meet your physical needs. He wants to, you know, and we think about how we have all kinds of desires at the physical level, whether it's for food, whether it's for sex, whether it's for um, all kinds of pleasures. But Jesus wants to give you food that reaches the deepest part of you. He wants to touch your soul. This is a really powerful theme throughout the Bible. I want to show you a couple of verses that just speak to this issue. Here's one that put, speaks of it in a negative sense. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God is lamenting the spiritual poverty of the nation of Israel and what's happened to them. And he describes it like this. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. They've walked away from me. The fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've turned away from an ever-flowing spring of perfect, sparkling, crystal water, cool and satisfying to to the soul, and instead dug holes in the ground to drink water from, water that has become stagnant, full of all kinds of bacteria and algae, and which ultimately will do you harm rather than help you. The Bible says that is your situation if you're away from God or you're wandering away from him as we speak. You're wandering away from the one who gives life, who nourishes you in the deepest part. I'll give you another example. In Psalm 107, it talks about this in terms of an experience of salvation. It says, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Now, this is metaphorical speech. He's talking about a soul problem, a spiritual problem. They're wandering under the blazing heat of the desert, and they're hungry and they're thirsty. And as God saves them, says he brings them to a city to dwell in, and then he says he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The most famous of all Psalms, Psalm 23, paints this picture for the person who's walking under the favor of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What does a sheep dream about? Green grass. He's saying, the Father has fulfilled my deepest desires, not just for food and drink at a physical level, but actually the soul longings that fill my dreams and imaginations, the ones that motivate me or that cause me to despair because I'm not feeling fulfillment in those areas. These passages put together We're like sheep wandering away or digging out cisterns for ourselves. But God wants to rescue you, bring you to a city to dwell in, 
fulfill your appetites. And he wants you to have the experience of him being like the good shepherd in your life who leads you beside still waters. So you have ever-flowing drink and green grass beyond your imagination. In the story that we read at the beginning, the the account of the feeding of the 5,000, it ends with this wonderful uh, little description of what happened. It says they all ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. And it's the same word, satisfied, that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount again when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The desires that would compel you and drive you in a never-ending quest further and further away from God are the very desires that God wants to meet, fulfill, and satisfy as you pursue Him. He wants to satisfy you. Now, I want us to drill just one layer down further into this story because actually this story speaks in an even deeper level about Jesus' desire to give himself to you. It's not just about his desire to meet your needs through provision. It's not just about his desire to meet your spiritual needs, to satisfy you at a soul level. It's actually about something even bigger than that. It's about Jesus wanting to give himself to the world. And the reason why I see that, the early church, when they read this story and they read it often, They interpreted it alongside another meal that takes place in the Gospels, which is the Last Supper, when Jesus broke bread and gave it to his disciples, because they saw the same resonances, the same echoes taking place on both occasions, that he took bread, that he blessed it, that he broke it, and then he passed it to his disciples. And you think, what's the Last Supper about? It's about the brokenness of Christ on behalf of the world, to feed the world, to change lives. And so I actually think this miracle, at its most deep and life-changing level, is about an enactment of the gospel, about Jesus being broken so that the world could be filled, so the world could be healed, so the world could be transformed, so that you could experience the life that he gives to you. And this is actually, I'm not just making this stuff up, this is exactly how Jesus teaches it in John's gospel. The story is that after this happened, on this, this occasion, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, John tells us that on the very next day, unsurprisingly, the thousands of people show up again. Because anybody who's had a free meal always comes back for more, don't they? If they think there's more free stuff. And um, they show up. And, and Jesus begin, he looks in their faces and he begins to rebuke them because he realizes they've missed the point entirely. And he says things like this to them. He says in, uh, in John six twenty seven, he says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. In other words, you're running after the wrong stuff. You've missed the point. Don't just chase me to have bread that I can multiply. He says, you need something better than that. Then he goes on to explain it in ways that actually caused immense confusion for people. How does he feed them? Well, he answers it like this. He says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. 
More free bread, please. They're still missing the point. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How does he feed them? He explains further on. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus multiplied bread to fill bellies in order to teach us that the only way to experience life is to indulge to consume Christ himself. And he, he, he makes this point very sharply to them on that day in John 6. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, unsurprisingly, on that particular occasion... Um, the thousands of people who'd come to him hoping for another free meal on that moment en masse abandon Jesus and they run away from him because they think this guy is absolutely nuts. What does he mean we're going to eat his bread, his, his, his body, drink his blood? But of course, Jesus is speaking to them about their deepest, deepest need, which is to have the life that he gives to you, that he communicates to you, that he nourishes you with. Now, This is where I want us to close. Some of you have never eaten, in a sense, which is to say you've never believed in Christ. To to partake of this meal, to enjoy Christ, is to believe that he died for your sins and and to make him Lord of your life. One of the the great challenges of raising little kids, and um, my daughter, especially at the moment, she's uh, just turned four, one of the great challenges around this age is you want to introduce them to new foods. And uh, they will look at a plate and say, I don't like that. No idea what it is or never seen it before in their life and say, I don't like that. And thankfully, she's just of an age where I can kind of reason with her. And there's a temptation not to bother as well because you think, this is good food. I spent good money on this. I can just feed you, you know, alphabetti spaghetti for the rest of your life, and that will cost us a lot less money. But this quality stuff, maybe you can do without it. But no, instead, of, we kind of persuade them. We're like, well, you don't actually know. Why don't you just have one mouthful and taste and see? And nine times out of ten, so try it and go, hmm, it's good. It's good. Like, no shame, no embarrassment for having just made a fool of herself. And then she just eats the meal. And you think, well, in many ways, this is exactly... This is Jesus' offer to the world. He's standing before the thousands of people and telling them, I'm about to do something for you which will utterly transform your life, and it's free. And they go, I don't like that. And they just walk away. I want to challenge you, if you're somebody who has never believed in Jesus, Jesus invites you. He says, come and, come and partake of this meal. Come and have the life that I want to give to you. I also recognize that a lot of you are, a lot of you actually already Christians, but maybe you've been eating food in the wrong places. This is the other challenge that we have with kids. You know, they come out of school, 3.30, 4 o'clock, 
and, and they're starving. And dinner's not, you know, no one eats dinner at that time, right? So you've got to somehow stretch the gap from end of school to dinner time at 6 or 7 o'clock. And uh, one of the things you just do because they get so whiny is give them snacks. You know, whether it's packet crisps or, you know, piece of toast or something like this. And the problem then is, of course, they don't eat their dinner. Now, these are just little free lessons. I know many, most of you don't have kids, so you've absolutely got no idea what I'm talking about. But this is the issue, right? We fill them up on rubbish, and then the good stuff they're not interested in. Some of you have been doing that. Jesus wants to be your sustenance and your life, and yet you've been filling up on rubbish. Trying to meet all your desires in unhealthy and often sinful ways. And Christ is inviting you today back to the table. This passage is about his desire to fill you. His desire to absolutely consume you as you consume him. To be your one obsession. To be the satisfying answer to your soul's deepest desires. And it may be the case that you know I have never really tasted Christ in that way. Or I've forgotten what that's like. and I need to come back to him. The psalm says, doesn't it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want to hand out the bread and the wine now. It just feels so appropriate, doesn't it? When we do this covenant renewal ceremony of eating the bread and drinking the wine, We are experiencing with our senses what Christ has done spiritually. We're nourishing ourselves, tasting his goodness. And it's meant to constantly communicate to you, Jesus is for you. He's giving himself to you. He wants to fill you. He wants to satisfy you. If only you'll seek him first. If you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, you can take this for the first time. Just tell Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I want to receive your forgiveness purchased for me on the cross. If you're a Christian and you're conscious, I need to have dealings with God right now so that you can eat this meal as fresh nourishment to your soul. I want to leave a couple of moments of quiet to have dealings with Jesus in this way. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we confess um, that we are very prone to doubt, particularly about whether you mean to do us good, whether you mean to meet our deepest desires. And Lord, it causes us to wander into all kinds of dangerous places in pursuit of fulfillment and satisfaction. Christ, we want to come back to you and feast on you. And I pray even now as we, as we remember your goodness, I pray that the Holy Spirit will come and in a very tangible and supernatural way meet our repentance with a fresh meal of your goodness. Let us taste you afresh. You may just want to open your hands and say, Lord, come Holy Spirit. Tell him you want to pursue Christ. You want to seek first his righteousness and have everything else added to you. 
that you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you'll be satisfied. I want to encourage you. Speak to him in whatever way you need to right now.